As we begin our new study in, in the book of Ezra, um, I'm reminded of the setting of all of Scripture. All of Scripture finds its context, finds its beginning um, in the narrative that we're familiar with from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, how that God made the world and everything in it and everything he made was good. But he gave this warning to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, you may eat of every tree and every fruit that's in the garden and enjoy it. You may have it for food, except for this one tree. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that's in the midst of the garden, here's the warning, you shall surely die. That was a promise, a warning. They could have gone on and enjoyed all of God's blessings in the land that he had given them, eaten of all the other fruits, and never once walked the direction of that tree, and they would have been happy in their relationship with God in the land. But despite God's warning, they sinned, they disobeyed, they ate of the fruit. And just as God had promised that if they would eat of the fruit, they would surely die, they plunged themselves and all of humanity into sin and death. And all of us have followed in their likeness since. But in all of that which happened in, in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and 3 and their sin, God did not leave them without a promise for restoration. He said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there God gave that first promise of redemption that there would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. They didn't know his name. They didn't know what he would be like. They didn't know anything about him other than that he would redeem them. He would crush the head of the serpent who had deceived them. And so the setting of Scripture in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is sort of typified or seen again in another light. Uh, in the book of Ezra. The setting of Ezra is very similar. You see, when Israel was delivered from the, uh, Egypt in the Exodus, and, and they went through the wilderness for those 40 years, and were finally brought into their land, God had made a covenant with His people. He said, if you obey me, keep my commandments, you will be a special people to me. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And Israel had that choice to make, that they could obey the law of God. Because God gave a warning also. He said, if you don't obey, if you turn to idols, I will take you out of your land. I will carry you off and scatter you. And your land will be destroyed. And they could have walked with God. They could have obeyed. They could have continued in faithfulness and enjoyed the land. Enjoyed the blessings and the promises of God that he had given them. And even when they did begin to turn to idols and when they did sin and break his law, he didn't destroy them right away. He sent prophets to warn them. And the prophets came and they said, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. This is sin. And if you continue in your sin, God will cast you out of your land. You will be taken off into the land of your enemies. And with every chance to repent, they just blew off the message of the prophets and God kept his promise. They were carried off 
by the Assyrians first, that nor- the northern tribes, and then centuries later, Jerusalem, Judah, the southern tribes were carried off into Babylon. You'll remember that from our study of Daniel. He was included in that time. In Jeremiah 29, everybody knows at least one verse out of that chapter, right? Jeremiah 29. Um, I thought I marked it, but apparently I didn't. Um, I'm going to read a passage for you there. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, God gives a promise. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Verse 11, which you all know, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So they had disobeyed. They faced the judgment of God. They were carried off into Babylon, but God had left them a promise of redemption. That after 70 years, they would come back to their land. And if you piece together the, the, the stories and the prophets and all the scriptures of the Old Testament, you'll find that 60-some uh, years later, uh, after they've been in Babylon, Babylon falls. Daniel comes into the room and says, listen, you've taken the, you've, you've drink, you're drinking from the articles from the temple of God. You've blasphemed God. You don't care about Him. And this very night, O king... Your, your kingdom's going to be taken from you. And it was that night that Persia came in and took over Babylon. So then that's where Ezra finds himself, or the book of Ezra begins. Verse 1 says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth's earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so here we find that God, after the 70 years of Israel being in Babylon, being in captivity, comes to fulfill his promise to bring his people back into their land. Now, how did he do that? I note three ways here in the passage. The first is this, he stirred up the king. He stirred up the king. And you notice in this passage that God is the one who took the initiative. God is the one who began the process of bringing the people back to their homeland. And you think about who it is that's living in Babylon at this time. It's not the same people who were carried off, at least for the most part. 
If it's been 70 years, many of those, most of those are dead and gone. And the people who are now dwelling in Babylon are the children and the grandchildren of those who were first taken. And so maybe some of them had remembered the promises of God. Maybe some of them had kept track of of a calendar. They knew that God would fulfill his word sometime soon. But God was the one who had reached down and stirred the heart of the king. It wasn't the Jews. They were in no position to help themselves. They were in no position to leave Babylon and take their land back on their own. They were powerless. They were helpless. They were under the authority of this new empire, not Babylon now, but Persia. And they had no way that they could ever make it back on their own. They couldn't take the initiative. Cyrus didn't even take the initiative. Cyrus was a a pagan, ungodly king if there ever was one. And you might be tempted to think from the things that he wrote in this decree that he, he turned and followed the Lord. But you read about the life of Cyrus. He did this for lots of gods. He thought that if he just gave every god their own city back or gave them their own town back, maybe they would be nice to him and make things go well for him. So he tried to speak well of everyone's gods. Cyrus just didn't think it up on his own to send the Jews back. The scripture tells us that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. But God did this so that his word would be fulfilled. Did you catch that phrase before that in verse 1? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, comma, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What, what word by Jeremiah? Well, that after 70 years they would be returned to their land. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God is committed to keeping his word. He will act. He will move heaven and earth. He will move the greatest empire and the greatest king on the planet to make sure that his word is fulfilled. God will keep his promises. Notice the king's decree. Verse 2, he, said, he, acknowledges that the, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. He says, Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth... The Lord God of heaven has given me. So at least to some degree, he recognized because of this revelation of God to him that the power that he has comes from God alone. We know that that's true from the word of God. No king, no sovereign has any power at all without the authority of God. When Jesus was before Pilate, Pilate says, aren't you going to speak to me? Aren't you going to answer me? Defend yourself? Don't you know that I have the power to kill you or I have the power to release you? And Jesus spoke up then and he said, you would have no authority if it hadn't been given to you by my father. There is no king, there is no ruler who has authority apart from God. And at least to some degree, Cyrus acknowledges that. He says he received the Lord's command. He said, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me and has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, you might wonder how God did that. How did God command Cyrus to do this? There's a passage, a, a, a prophecy that Isaiah gives in Isaiah 44 that was written at least 150 years before Cyrus was ever even on the scene. Listen, Isaiah says this. Isaiah 44, 28, who says of Cyrus, he's speaking of the Lord, the Lord who says of Cyrus, calls him by name. He is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, 
your foundation shall be laid. God gave that prophecy 150 years before there ever was a King Cyrus. Now Josephus, the historian, tells us that it was uh, someone who brought this prophecy from Isaiah to Cyrus and him seeing it is what stirred him to fulfill it. Some think maybe it was even Daniel who brought it to him and said, Hey, uh, your name's Cyrus, right? Yeah, well, there's uh, this thing about a guy named Cyrus that Isaiah wrote a long time ago. Would you like to read it? And Cyrus the king reads this prophecy that there will be a Cyrus who will send the people back to their land, that their temple and their city would be rebuilt. And Josephus says that it was in, in enthusiasm to fulfill that prophecy that Cyrus says, I have to do this. I have to send these people back. God commanded by His Word, His very Word. Let me just say this as an aside. Don't ever hesitate to tell people what the Bible says because you never know what God's going to do through it. Now, He doesn't have uh, each individual name written in there. There's a Jacob in there, but He's not talking to me. I don't know of any Willies or any Juanitas. But there are some uh, whosoevers. And there are some all of you who and, and things like that. So don't ever be ashamed to show people what the Word of God says because it's the Word of God that has power and God will accomplish His purposes through it. Don't ever be ashamed to show people what God's Word says. He received the Lord's command. And notice too that in this, this stirring of the King and in this proclamation that comes about that God's priority in restoration is worship. God's priority is worship. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, And he has commanded me to build him a house, a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he commands the people, Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Now God has promised to send them back to their land that they may inhabit it. He's promised that the walls will be rebuilt, the city will be rebuilt, and that the temple will be rebuilt. But what's His first priority? Worship. Let the temple be built first. Friends, God has plans for you. He has priorities for you. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, His first priority for your life is that you love Him above all else and that you worship Him with your life. That's your priority. Yes, there are other things He wants you to do, but His number one priority is to worship Him. This passage, this stirring of the heart of the king, just proves what Proverbs 21 says, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, He turns it wherever He wishes. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Do you believe that? That He turns it wherever He wishes. Do you believe that? You know, when it comes to how we respond to the, the, our society and to our government, you should fulfill your duties. I fully believe that. You should vote. If you want to protest, protest. Don't be a jerk. Don't hurt anybody. Fulfill your duties as a citizen of your nation. That's fine. But you know what you ought to do first? Pray. Why? Because ultimately, God is the only sovereign. God is the one who can turn the hearts of kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents and governors. 
It is God who has that authority. Do your duty, but make it your priority to pray and to seek God and trust Him because He is the only sovereign. Friends, as the church, we are to keep to God's business. We're to do what God has commanded. We are to prioritize worship regardless of the political environment. Whether it's the way we think it ought to go or if it's going down the tubes. Whatever's going on, our priorities are still the same. Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What's going on in the world around you will not change the fact that God has made that promise, that the king's heart is in his hand and he will accomplish his purposes. So I ask you again, do you believe that? Does the way you live, do your priorities reflect that? So how does God keep his promises here to Israel? Well, first he stirred up the king, but second, he, he provided all they needed. He provided all they needed. He stirred not just the heart of the king, but he stirred the leaders and the people to act. Verse 5, he says, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. God's initiative wasn't just needed to move the heart of the king, but it took God's initiative to move the Jews. To move God's own people, you think after 70 years, they've established homes. They have businesses. They have livelihoods. They have friends. Most of them weren't interested in just packing up and going back to a city of rubble to start over. But God stirred the hearts of some to get up and to go. He gave them the, the spoils of Babylon. Look in verse 6, he says, All those who were around them encouraged them with the articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. You know, God did the same thing when he brought Israel out of Egypt. You remember? Exodus 12 says, Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given them favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted their requests. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so he does the same thing here for the Jews in Babylon. God moves in such a way that they're getting silver, they're getting gold, they're getting clothes. Everything they need for their journey, everything they need for their work is being provided for them by their captors. Only God can do that. He also returned the articles from the temple. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had taken the, the vessels from the temple of God and had put them in the temple of his own gods. And here in verse 7, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And you go on and read and see how much it is, how many plates and knives and bowls and silver and gold, if you're interested in all that stuff. What motivation would Cyrus have to go into the temple of, of his own gods and to take the articles from that and give it back to the Jews so they could take it to Jerusalem? Humanly speaking, he had no motivation to do that. This is the work of God. That's God providing everything that Israel would need to do the work that God wanted them to do. The Lord said of his temple vessels back in Jeremiah 27, He said, They shall be carried to Babylon... 
There they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. That's just another promise that God has fulfilled in bringing Israel back. God will provide everything His people need to live for Him and to obey Him. So how are you doing with trusting Him in that? God will provide everything His people need to live for Him and obey Him. God says, get up and go back to Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, I'm giving you gold and silver and clothes from the Babylonians. God says, rebuild the temple. Oh, by the way, you're going to need these articles that's in the temples of Nebuchadnezzar. And God supplies them all. I mean, for a lot of families, these times, these days are kind of tough economically. Everything's expensive. You know, the popular thing to talk about this week is eggs, right? It'll be something else next week. So whether it's eggs or gas or whatever you need, listen, you be faithful. You focus on leading your home to love the Lord and to be obedient to Him. And Matthew 6 says that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. God will take care of what you need. Now, what you think you need might not be what you actually need, but God will make sure that you have everything you need. Not just for families as a whole, but even children and, and teenagers, whether you have uh, some felt needs of something, it's not always a purchase, something you feel like you have to have, or maybe it's an, an emotional or relational need. You feel like you have to have the approval of other people around you, or you have to have the things that they have. Listen, your focus, your priority is not to worry about the, getting the things that you don't have. Your focus is on seeking God and being obedient to Him. You spend time reading your Bible. You spend time praying. You spend time obeying your parents and honoring the Lord at home. And guess what? He will meet your needs. Again, it may not be the things you think you need, but God will give you everything that you need. So he stirred up the heart of the king. He provided all they needed. And then third, he, he returned them to their land. Many of those who returned are recorded. Not everyone is listed here, but many are. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. And then in verse 2, he begins listing name after name after name after name for the rest of the chapter. Now, when you're in your Bible reading plan, you hate it when you come to passages like this. What's my chapter today? Oh, Ezra 2. Lovely. And you work your way through out of a sense of duty, or maybe you don't. And you wonder, what's the point? Well, for one, it reminds me that this isn't just a story. See, these names don't really make a lot of difference to us. They don't mean a lot to us, but it would if it was your name. It meant something to these people because they were real people. And so it's good to remind ourselves every once in a while that, you know, if somebody was making up a story, they just wanted to have a fairy tale in a book, they would not include Ezra chapter 2 because they would want people to read it. But these are real people who lived in a real place at a real time in history. 
And these promises that God fulfilled, he fulfilled them for real. He kept his promise to these people. It also reminds us that God knows those who are his by their own name. You are not just a number in a group. God doesn't just say, I love my church, whoever all is included in that. But he says, no, I love Janet, I love Ray, I love Trixie. And he goes down the list. He knows each of you by name. He knows each of you intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. Names are important to God. These, a personal relationship with him is what he desires from us. But God brings them back just like he said he would. If you look at verse 70 in chapter 2, he says the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, what they do? Dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. Now they were sleeping on the ground, I'm sure. Their pillow was a rock. But I bet they slept well knowing God has kept his word and brought us back into our land. They came back, though, to fulfill a purpose. Back up a couple of verses to verse 68. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. You see, everything that they needed had already been provided. They plundered their captors. Their articles from the temple have been restored to them. They're back in their land. God has kept his word. And what's their response when they get home? They're motivated to obey and to do his will. Friends, God's record of promises kept, and you could probably list some in your own life, but God's record of promises kept energizes us to do his work. When you see all that God has done, how that he has saved you from sin, he has brought you from darkness to life, how he's never left you alone, and he's kept every promise he ever said he would, you think about that God and what should your response be? I want to do exactly what he wants me to do. I want to obey him. I want to live for him. God's record of promises kept energizes us to do his work. See, in, in Genesis, we saw the parallel, how that God gave his warning, but then Adam sinned. Then God judged, but he promised redemption. Just as we see God fulfilled his promises in Ezra, he fulfilled that promise from Genesis 3. That promise to send one to crush the head of the serpent was fulfilled in the one we know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. who came to this world and he lived his sinless life because you couldn't. And he died on the cross and took your punishment so that you wouldn't have to. And he was buried and he was raised from the dead to prove that he had done exactly what he said he would do and that he was exactly who he said he was. To prove that he had kept his promise. He rose from the dead. We who are, we who were exiles, we who were slaves to our sin are now set free. We've been released from bondage. God has promised to, to meet our needs, and He over and over and over again proves Himself faithful. He will keep us. He will lead us all the way safely home. 
until we reach that land where we will never leave his presence again. God has kept his promises and he will keep his promises. And it's his record of promises kept that motivates us, that energizes us to follow him, to do his work. Now, God knows that we are forgetful creatures. And no matter how faithful he is and how many promises he has kept, we still some mornings wake up and say, God, why didn't you do this? God, where are you? Why haven't you answered this prayer yet? And we feel distant from him. And so God built reminders into his church. He built these ordinances into his local assemblies. And the, the two that he gave us are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And whenever a sinner is saved and we fill up our pool of water and we see them go down into the water, we see someone who has died to sin and who is raised up to new life in Jesus Christ. And that's a reminder to all of us who have experienced the same thing, that we have been born again, that we have new life in Christ. God has kept his promise and sent a Messiah, sent a Savior. And the other is the Lord's Supper. And that every time we as Christians come and we take the bread and we eat it. We think of the body of our Lord Jesus that was crushed for us. As he died for our sins on the cross. And when we drink of the cup, we think of his blood that was shed for us. So that we could have life, eternal life, abundant life in him. So he's given us these reminders and it's that reminder, that of the Lord's Supper that we come to today. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Then he gives a warning. He says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he says to those in Corinth, he said, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So the deacons are going to come and, and distribute these elements to you in just a moment. But before they do, we need to spend time in prayer. Because if you have any known sin in your life, something in your life you have not confessed to God and repented, do not take this bread and cup. Because you eat and drink judgment on yourself if you do. But if you've been born again, you've received new life in Christ, you're walking in fellowship with him and his church. Then the invitation is there. 
to take and eat and drink and remember our Lord who died for you. And not only did he die for you, but he made another promise that he would come again. And in that day, we will eat and drink with him in his kingdom. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are our promise-keeping God. That you have given us your word and every word is true. Just as you kept your promise that you made in Genesis 3, you sent a Savior. Just as you made all your promises to Israel and you kept them. And just as many of us in this room have seen you proven yourself true in the promises you've made to us. Lord, we know that one day you will come again. Receive us to yourself that where you are, we will be also. And until that day, Lord, may we remind ourselves and take part in these reminders that you've given us. That we may go on believing, go on trusting that you are our promise-keeping God. And Lord, if someone here has not been born again, I pray that your spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, that they would fear for their souls, but that they would see the free offer, the free gift of grace that is in Jesus. Forgiveness and life that you will give. Now, Lord, be honored in this time together. Lord, if anyone here has sin in their life, bring it to their attention even now that they may confess and repent before they take of this bread and cup. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.